0: So, today is a day we're going to be looking at uh, just one discourse of the Buddha um, in our tradition, the Pali Canon tradition, Theravadin tradition that's practiced in Burma, Thailand, and Sri Lanka. <clears throat> and it's the basic tradition here at Spirit Rock. Um, and this is a day for experienced students. You know, people have at least sat one retreat, if not more, and some people have uh, sat many retreats. And so, this is a uh, day um, to support people who have already sort of been launched on the practice, um, into these practices. So um, we're going to sort of dive right into one of these central discourses. Pali was the language very close to what the Buddha taught. And uh, you can say that in Pali, this discourse is called the Anapanasati Sutta. That's what is up on the screen there if you want to find it and read it, um, it's in the Middle-Length Discourses uh, 118, 118. That's called the Majima Nikaya 118. You can find many versions of this. It's such an incredibly central and uh, famous discourse that there are many, many translations. So part of the day we'll be going through um, this discourse and then pointing out um, variations that uh, different traditions within our one large tradition of Theravada, there are many schools that have found a way to relate to this discourse. Um, So there's not just one way to practice with this discourse. The reason this discourse is important and why I wanted to give a day on it, especially to experienced students, is that um, you you can do a lot of practice and actually be covering this territory, but not know that you're covering it. So a lot of us have practiced mindfulness of breathing before and have felt the benefit for that. And I don't need to convince you of the benefit of it, or maybe you do if, you, <laughs> if you've plateaued and you kind of wonder, why do I keep doing this? Uh, maybe that will come through today as well. But you'll see that in this particular discourse, there's actually a training, and there's actually a very um, graduated training of how to start a practice and take it all the way to... Uh, full-blown enlightenment and so if you feel like your practice has plateaued you might discover something in this discourse that is a piece you could work on and a piece you probably have been doing uh, unconsciously but if you actually spend time on that 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 aspect of your practice you might feel your practice then um, going deeper than it's gone before that's one thing i like about this particular discourse is very detail-oriented about how we're supposed to be practicing mindfulness and how to use the breath as both a starting place, but also support for keep going deeper and deeper into your practice. As it's described here, it's it's described as if you were just in um, a solitary focused retreat, or not solitary, I mean, you might, might be with the community, but it's described as sort of like this, a straight drop down through intensive mindfulness practice. And yet, <clears throat> as you probably have all learned, um, Taking these practices out into your ordinary life is is really important because if they don't come out into your ordinary life, then they're not that helpful. I mean, they help you when you're on a cushion or when you're being silent, but they don't help you in traffic or they don't help you when you're um, struggling with people you live with or people you work with. Um, So there's actually a way to take these practices and then integrate them into your life. And all of you being experienced practitioners are somewhere um, in there exploring that how to integrate these practices. I'm right now I'm teaching a three-month intensive program for lay people in the in the East Bay. And it's about how to use the breath to stay sane in life. When we're incredibly stimulated, we're now doing an experiment in uh, human psychology, <clears throat> taking a nervous system that was developed to be somewhat close to the great apes living in Africa, and we give it we're revving our nervous systems tremendously with cell phones and traffic and, um, incredible jobs, incredible, um, schedules. And so even as you all know, kids today have to schedule in their playtime. And very few people in this room actually had that growing up, but what we're doing to a human nervous system is we're revving it, we're revving it, we're revving it. And we get more and more lost and kind of caught in that, um, in that whirlwind and so here is actually also a way you can learn to calm your own nervous system down and there's a lot of skill woven through this particular discourse and how to do that so it's both a guide for how to deepen your practice on the cushion and uh, see more deeply into the nature of reality your heart your mind your body your life but it also gives you tools that you then can take out into your life when you find that you're too uh, too revved up too stimulated and you don't quite know what to do next, it may not occur to you to reach for your breath. It seems like the problems are so great, and the breath is so ordinary. How could the breath be um, a useful tool to meet the stresses of our contemporary lives? And yet I'm sure all of you can um, attest that that you have an intuition, if not actual direct experience, that building a relationship to your breath actually is a very useful tool. As i've held these students uh, to this practice and it's taken a few weeks to gain momentum they're all reporting that that almost all through the day awareness of the breath to some degree or just stopping and taking five conscious breaths (coughs) brings in a type of sanity and then brings in solutions because you're actually more grounded in your body your heart your mind and then you can see things that you couldn't see otherwise because you were overstimulated So this discourse is both a guide for how to go very deep into practice, like you might on a silent retreat, but it also gives tools to how to work with your own nervous system and uh, um, calm it down if you're overstimulated, lift it if you're uh, feeling tired or depressed, and then keep learning, keep looking directly into the nature of your own life and discover what you need to to grow wisdom and understanding so that we can actually make better choices. That's all woven in this particular discourse, the Yana Panasati Sutta. And as central as this sutta is to our tradition, not many people know it, which is also kind of a shocking thing. If you go over to uh, Burma, where I spent a lot of time, everybody knows this. In fact, if you're a serious practitioner, you could probably chant it from beginning to end. It's about nine pages long of text. And people would chant it so that they would never not know it. You'd learn to chant it, and then you'd go off and do your practice, and you wouldn't necessarily have a written copy of it, but you could just recall the various passages. So this would be one of you know, a dozen that you would memorize uh, to support your practice. So as important as this is, many of us don't know it in detail. And that's what today will be. Today, we will get to see it, get to see its importance. And then probably it's worthwhile to actually do a deeper study of this one discourse. Um, and hopefully this will just be kind of Um, a good overview, so that when you go deeper into the pieces of it, uh, it'll make sense, it'll make more sense once you have the sort of overall view of it. So, let's dive in. The first thing is, I want to recommend these two books, um, and I'll I'll have these up at the end of the day too, but in case you don't uh, stay the entire day. Once you see what this discourse is about, if you really want to continue your study of it, there are two great books written on it. And there are many, many translations with commentary that you can find online. But um, Larry Rosenberg, one of the teachers in our tradition, wrote a great book, Breath by Breath, and it's basically a slow walk through this discourse. And the nice thing is, is he's from our culture. He's from you know, he was born and raised here in North America, so he has a, he gives a lot of insight into this classical text from his own experience. And he's been a teacher for a long time, so he has a nice way of um, walking people through the material. And the other one is Mindfulness with Breathing, a manual for serious beginners by a monk in Thailand who passed away, but he was an important teacher, Buddhadasa Bhikkhu. If you read his translation, you're going to get a more classic um, uh, Asian or Eastern understanding of this. So it's a little bit uh, harder to get into, but you get to feel... The uh, the many um, centuries, if not millennia, of how this practice was held in Asia. There's ter- two very good books on it. If you get interested in this topic, so the Anapanasati Sutta, Mindfulness of Breathing Discourse. We're going to get into it, and it has <clears throat> it has structure to it. So I want to point out the structure to it. So when you go into read this later on, if you're interested you kind of understand these different parts of the discourse. The first part, part—it actually has four parts, and you'll see that four is actually, there are a lot of fours in this particular discourse, which is nice, because there are a lot of random numbers you couldn't remember, but if you can remember fours, there's a lot of fours. There are four parts of this discourse. One is a very beautiful opening prologue leading into the, the technical details of how to practice meditation. The second part of the Anapanasati Sutta is these 16 steps of how to use the breath to deepen your meditation practice. And so there are these 16 graduated steps that you take. And mostly people walk uh, go in between these steps, but every now and then it's good to actually train in these steps and how they build upon each other. And most of us have not done that, which is why our practice tends to level off because we actually haven't, Worked on these foundations and let them work together. So, understanding these 16 steps in the second part of the Anapanasati Sutta um, will be the majority of what we do today. It's about what we can do today. But then, I want to also show you the other two parts of the discourse. The second, I mean, the third quarter of the discourse is going through the four foundations of mindfulness. Um, How many of you have never heard of the four foundations of mindfulness? Okay, if you looked around, you'd see uh, almost no one raised their hand, and maybe you might be too shy to raise your hand. <laughs> but it's also a very central teaching in our tradition how to use mindfulness to unlock where we're confused. Mindfulness alone can be very liberating because we get to see clearly the flow of present-time experiences. But then we're supposed to point mindfulness in these four areas because it's where we have the most confusion and where we generate our suffering out of that confusion. So the four foundations of mindfulness are what we then do with these 16 steps. Develop these 16 steps of mindfulness of breathing, and then we point them into the four foundations of mindfulness. And we'll go through more of them in the in the later part of the day, what these four foundations are. If, there, if it's new to you, don't, don't worry. You actually all have been doing this, whether you know it or not. If you've been practicing in our tradition, you've already been doing this. And this is just to make it a little bit more explicit and then show you how these things interrelate. So the third part of the Anapanasati Sutta is going through the four foundations of mindfulness. It's a little bit more brief than the actual discourse on the four foundations of mindfulness, but it's right in there. And it's where we're supposed to take these 16 steps of meditation then into the four foundations of mindfulness. And then lastly, we go to develop what's called the seven factors of awakening. And I'll talk more about this at the end of the day, but just to show you the overall structure now. The seven factors of awakening, these are qualities of heart and mind that we're supposed to develop. They develop whether we want them or not, whether we want to develop them or not. Um, they come along with practice. But again, if you kind of see what the role of these seven factors, these several, um, seven mental factors, what they, um, how they work together, they're what cause game-changing insights. So we all have some understanding of arising and passing, for example. We all have some understanding of the selfless nature of of our existence. But it doesn't translate deeply. And as it translates more and more deeply, we get liberated. And one of the things that helps these insights translate and liberate us are these seven factors of heart and mind that do the work of making our insights liberate us. And that's at the end of this discourse, mindfulness of breathing. So four parts. We're really going to be working on the 16 steps today. Just to give you some orientation. The prologue is beautiful. Not every discourse has a beautiful prologue. Sometimes the Buddha just walks up to a group of practitioners and says, what were you talking about? How are you practicing? They go right into it, and he goes right into a teaching. This particular discourse has a beautiful lead-in where the Buddha is sitting, and he begins to survey the Sangha that he's developed. And his particular Sangha at that time, he looks around and he sees uh, some of his greatest disciples are around him at the end of this rains retreat when they spend three months together. And so if you know these uh, names, Sariputta is there, Moggallana is there, Ananda is there who memorized all the discourses. Um, this this uh, disciple, Anaruda, is there, and he's known for his great powers of concentration. So he sees his great disciples. He looks around and he sees many people who have become fully awakened. He's sort of surveying the crowd. And he sees many people uh, teaching. So he sees people in all these little groups having these discussions and practicing together in small bands spread out through this grove. He looks around and he and he says to them all, I, <clears throat> I'm i looking around and I see you all, and I'm, I'm very satisfied with what I see, the amount of practice, the, the loyalty, the dedication. This is quite an assembly of practitioners. People dedicated, people teaching each other, people practicing together. So the Buddha is very happy at the end of this uh, rains retreat when he looks at when he looks everybody over. When he looks over the sangha that's developed. So that's the first part. And if you ever read the discourse, um, it's it's. Go slowly of that piece, because it's actually kind of a beautiful image of all these people who have practiced and become fully awakened on the progress of awakening. He describes some of the practices that people are doing, like the Brahma Viharas are mentioned. Also, mindfulness of breathing is mentioned in the prologue. So, This is not the first time he taught about it. This particular discourse is his uh, longest and most detailed, but he must have taught variations of this because people were practicing it even before he gave this discourse. So he's turning to the assembly of people who already know roughly how to use mindfulness of breathing to uh, further liberate themselves. But he's going to teach them uh, in in great detail um, how to use it. And from that, uh, everybody will have had a sort of great exposure to how to use mindfulness of breathing towards uh, at least reducing their suffering, if not actually ending it altogether. The next part is then jumping right into the 16 steps of um, developing mindfulness of breathing. So this is what we're going to dive into next. So there are 16 steps. And you all have done these 16 steps, I promise you. But we're going to spend some time trying to relate your experience to how these steps are described. And if they don't make sense, it's probably just because the, uh, the languaging of it versus your experience um, hasn't quite connected. So hopefully some of that will happen today. These are not radically new experiences. You've all had some of it, or you wouldn't be in the room today. These 16 steps are broken into four groups, another four. And each group of four has two pairs. <laughs> Welcome to Theravada with its lists upon lists and lists made up of lists. So here it is, the 16 steps. We're gonna um, describe this and then I'm gonna guide you in a practice so you actually (coughs) practice it, but just to kind of draw it out. um, The first thing we're gonna do this morning is work on the first 12 steps. And the first 12 steps are really how do we establish ourselves so that our attention is steady? How do we develop steady mindfulness through the flow (coughs) of present time experiences? And that's what these first 12 steps are really pointed at. How do we stabilize mindfulness? The first group of four is working with breath and body and creating that foundation, mindfulness of the breath, mindfulness of the body, making sure that we're actually embodied and not just spinning in our minds. The next group of four is geared towards calming mental activity, And as you know, in practice, a lot of what we're doing is being swept up into mental activity. Plans, memories, fears, hopes, a lot of the doings of the mind. And as we use the mind throughout the day, it's why it picks up these habits, because we're constantly being mentally active. Then we go to sit down and practice, and we find there's so much momentum of the mind being busy that we actually have to um, learn many ways to calm our minds down from the habits they developed of being uh, incessantly busy. And as you'll know, you can even go on a silent meditation retreat for months if you want. And it's difficult to slow down mental activity. When I was a monk in Burma for about a year and a half, I was just so shocked. I was like, I have not been pushing you. I've not thrown logs in the fire. I've not been trying to develop mental activity and it still is really hard to calm it down. So I was like nine months into it, and I was like, you are still active. You still will not easily calm down. And then it would calm down. And I was like, oh, finally. And it'd speed up again. And it wanted to review all my past life, or just this one life, let alone all the ones that came before it. And it wanted to plan its future. And I was like, we're not doing that now. <laughs> That's not what we're, like, look at my entire life, look at all that I'm doing. Every moment of my day is trying to get you to rest and you just won't rest. And it would just be so fascinated by its scary visions and its brilliance and all these things. And it's almost like a babbling three-year-old. It's like, you know, wow, you just keep on talking. <laughs> so calming mental activity, there's a, there's a, there's a process to that. And if you're able to work with the breath and the body in this first group of four, you stand a better chance of actually calming mental activity in the second group of four. The third group of four is once you calm mental activity, how do we develop this, um, what's called samadhi? And the common English translation is concentration, which I don't like so much because samadhi is not just concentration it's a stable state of well-being where you feel so well in the f- in in the present that you're not distracted so the word concentration doesn't necessarily engender that but actual samadhi is a is a submerged experience in well-being and well-being drawn out of the present so your mind is not even tempted to go to the future or the past so concentration doesn't carry that um, that side of samadhi, concentration has that, the focus side of it, but the focus is born out of um, a kind of a pervasive sense of calm, contentment, well-being, um, evenness, and then it's very easy to focus because of that. So that's what the third group of four is, the suggestions on cultivating samadhi. And then we use samadhi for the last group of four, and there are these four steps in how we liberate ourselves, really through the practice of vipassana. And so the way I was trained in different monasteries in Burma is that the practice of samadhi, of calming the mind, is a different practice than liberating the mind through um, having these deep insights. And the deep insights change the way you perceive things. And that ends up liberating you from the confusion that causes your suffering. Samadhi can do a lot of that because you're not agitated. But there's a certain layer of confusion that we can't get at just through samadhi. And that's why you need different practices. But those practices are not that fruitful if you haven't developed samadhi. You're just being kicked around by the activities of the mind. And although you're living in the truth of, say, impermanence, it doesn't translate deeply into... Um, a greater sense of freedom mostly because we don't have the underlying samadhi to make that translation. So as it's described here these are the uh, 16 steps. We'll go into them in detail but this is you can see the overarching um, architecture of these 16 steps working with breath and body working with uh, calming mental activity taking mind that has calmed mental activity into these absorbed states these states of samadhi and then using that as a basis to then be much more productive in the pasana which is meant to really change the way we perceive what's happening moment by moment (laughs) how are we doing so far people on board yeah anybody have a question that would help them get back on board or stay on board Chitta, C-I-T-T-A. So when we get into the 16 steps, that's where this little list comes up. What I've done on this is I've left the Pali in a lot of this when we get into it because every, there's, there's a lot of variation in what English words people use to translate the Pali. And so if I didn't, if I used my English and then you went to study the sutta through somebody else's uh, um translation, it wouldn't make any sense because they would use their English. And so there's just a lot of variation. And so one of the struggles of getting to know this particular discourse is understanding the underlying uh, Pali words and then seeing how they get translated. So because you're experienced practitioners and you're likely to keep doing this, that's why you're here today, learning a little bit of the Pali is helpful. And so this one word, chitta. C-I-T-T-A, is the realm of the heart and the mind. And so as we get into this, you'll see what what chitta is and how how we experience it. So I'm going to take us through the first 12 steps, then we're going to practice it. So prepare yourself (laughs) to have mental uh, capacity to go through this. The first four, let's see, okay, before we get into them, there's some, uh, two general comments I want to make, because they're really important, so um, you'll see this played out, but I want to, I want to show it to you first, because as it gets played out, I want to keep referring to these two really important ways that we develop mindfulness, especially in this discourse. The first thing is that when you look at the structure of the Anapanasati Sutta, all 16 steps are started with, while breathing in, I do this. While breathing out, I do that. And so the breath is not where we start and then leave the breath to do other things. It's actually in concert with breathing that we develop all 16 steps. (laughs) The breath comes with you all the way to liberation. The breath is not um, just a starting place, but then there's more exciting stuff elsewhere. It's actually by remaining with the breath and getting to know the breath and becoming intimate with the breath, that we liberate ourselves, at least if you're following this particular way to liberation through mindfulness of breathing. So it's a preliminary starting place, but then we stay with it while we're developing all the other steps. So breath is important. And just due to uh, trying to save paper, I didn't put the breathing in, breathing out um, on each one of these steps, but just know each one of them, when you look at the discourse, it does say, while breathing in, do step one by breathing out, do step one. While breathing in, do step ten. While breathing out, do step ten. So the breath is is central to this development all the way through. And we don't graduate from the breath. And that's actually been my experience too. You know, I started practicing twenty five years ago. And then every now and then I've taken up some interesting practices like the Brahmaviharas or looking at awareness or emptiness. And then I find the next thing for me to do is actually get back in my body and make sure I'm actually being embodied so that my, whatever I'm understanding is becoming embodied. And more and more of my practice actually has been coming deeper, a deeper and deeper embodiment of my freedom. But the body and breath are not just starting places that I've graduated from. I've actually taken all that I've learned and used that to go back into the breath and back into the body. Next thing you're going to see with mindfulness, and this is important to know, is that there's encouragement to experience something before you go to change it. And that's really important for mindfulness practice. We all want the outcome of mindfulness practice, but if you go too quickly towards the outcome that you want, feeling more peaceful, more centered, less distracted, if you move too quickly at that, you may not really have understood what it is that you're trying to change, And so these are the two great aspects of mindfulness practice. Surrendering into deeper intimacy with the way things are on the one hand. So that when you go to change something, you actually, you understand what's happening and you actually make a more skillful intervention. So before you go to change your anger, you have to breathe with your anger to understand it and understand why you're caught and where your anger is coming from. So that you can actually go to dissipate the anger in a healthy way if you go quickly to dissipating anger or grief or sadness you end up just suppressing it so one part of mindfulness is to experience it before you go about trying to make things um, take things in a maybe a healthier direction does that make sense for people okay and so you'll hear that uh, you'll hear that as we guide meditation and as if you're struggling with something it's not changing fast enough and you're doubting your practice, chances are you haven't totally breathed with what you're struggling with enough. And that's why there isn't really a solution yet. You can make a a temporary solution to buy you some time, but the full letting go often happens when you can fully breathe with the grief, the anger, the confusion. And that actually brings a whole host of solutions to the problem you're having, being able to breathe with it first. Anyways, you'll see that echoed throughout this um, this discourse. And if you do study the four foundations of mindfulness, which is a different discourse, that's also in there, a lot more of experiencing before intervening. This is what I'd like you to practice today also, if you can remember. Breathe with something before you go shifting, before you go trying to um, move directly towards what you would prefer. First, breathe with the way things are and then see what it's like to shift towards how you'd rather things be. So, 16 steps. First group is breath and body. And classically, they just call this the body section because the ba- the breath is felt within the body. The first step is, the first two steps, we'll put them up together. You <clears throat> begin just knowing that you're breathing at all. And then you ask yourself to be mindful of a full cycle of breathing, not just, I'm aware that I'm breathing, I'm aware I'm breathing in, I'm aware I'm breathing out, but can you begin to track a full cycle of breathing? And if you do that, within usually several minutes, you start to be um, somewhat hypnotized by the breath, and the breath can be very soothing, and you find yourself sort of uh, drowsy and drifty, kind of present, but not that present, And so these first two steps are to get you to freshly ask, moment by moment, to investigate each breath as it comes. You relax, and then take each breath in as a fresh experience. So is this particular breath you're having long? Is this particular breath you're having short? If 10 minutes later the breath has changed, when did it change? When did it begin to get longer When did it begin to get shorter? Asking these questions can keep you from going into sort of um, a little bit of a breath awareness trance, where you start thinking, "Eh, one breath is so much like the the previous breath, and it's probably like the next breath. So I'm just gonna uh, go a little sleep here. I'm gonna zone out a little bit. And you all know that that happens. The breath is not so fascinating unto itself. (laughs) That you're sitting there, like, like you're watching your favorite movie, eating popcorn, and you're, it's a nail-biter. It's like, yeah, it's the breath. It's kind of like the breath. It has always been. So knowing long breaths, knowing short breaths. You also get to know states of mind and heart. Because longer breaths <clears throat> tend to be when you're feeling more relaxed and in a greater st- uh, state of well-being. And shorter breaths, either there's some holding in the torso, so you can't breathe that deeply, or you're in somewhat of a of a stimulated state, and so your breath is shorter, so just there's a lot in these first two steps, knowing long breaths and short breaths, and not um trying to gallop past this stage, but actually really knowing your breath and this is the this is the foundation you can think of these sixteen steps as a pyramid, and the broader the base is, the higher you can build the pyramid so the more you know your breath, the more you can go higher or deeper into these 16 steps. And these next two are a pair. This is where we get into what I was just talking about. The next thing says, experiencing the whole body while breathing in. Experiencing the whole body while breathing out. That's a step unto itself. And so you know your breath and how you know your breath at all is that it's arising within your body. So you're already somewhat in the field of the body when you know the breath. And then different traditions do these next two steps differently. If you're familiar with uh, Goenka's tradition, um, the teacher named S. N. Goenka, he does experiencing the body as a very careful body scan. And so you take um, the size of your thumbnail and you go all over the surface of your body, trying to feel what's happening there. And that's how it'll sweep constantly, day in and day out, just sweeping up and down the body. That's how he interprets and how he was taught and how he teaches what this step three is experiencing the body. Other people, it's, the breath is still central, <clears throat> but rather than only looking at the breath and kind of forgetting that you have a body, you remember that the breath is happening within an alive human body. And it's just a little bit more as if, let's say, I had you focus on my hand, and now focus on my hand, understanding that there's a lot more around my hand, so that my hand is still central to what you're taking in, but you take in all that's around it. And that's a whole development. How can I be aware of the breath and still aware that I have a body? It's like, oh, I can do that. It's mostly breath, but I'm aware that there's a body around the breath, and the breath is arising within the body. That's a totally valid way of doing this step three. When I was in Burma, I was trying so hard to get enlightened as quickly as possible <laughs> that they would talk about absorbing into the breath and other things falling away. And so I tried to like force that to happen. So I was just on the breath, and if I was aware of my body, I was like, no, you're supposed to fall away by now. Fall away, body, fall away. <laughs> I ended up being averse to the fact that my body was pulling on my attention. And so I tried to do I tried to just manhandle my attention just to be absorbed in the breath and that didn't work. So <laughs> I don't recommend it that you try to like um put a big spike on your attention, drive it right into the breath and just hold on until freedom happens. <laughs> Other people and this is um Eugene Cash teaches this style when we do the concentration retreat while breathing in he breath he breathes up his arm an awareness that he has an arm and breathes down until while he's breathing he's aware that he has an arm and over here he breathes in on this arm then he breathes one leg breathes both legs breathes that he has a torso and then breathes that he has shoulders a heck and a heck in the net, <laughs> a neck and a head And then he breathes and see if he can breathe and open up. um, It's a very dynamic way to, to pull your attention into the body. That's a third way. And then a fourth way is the breath becomes a support while you go just, I don't have to breathe with it. The breath is there supporting my attention. But I'm really curious about bodily extensions in my hand, bodily sensations in this hand, bodily sensations in my torso, my legs. So it's not quite the, the scanning that Goenka does, but you're starting to open up your attention, open up awareness to the, that you have a body. All of you have dabbled in this, or all of you actually have trained in this to some degree, knowing bodily experience, especially while doing walking meditation, while walking around during retreat when you're not just on breath. There's a lot of body awareness. You can find which of these techniques work for you. I'll guide us in particular one, but then you can experiment. And then number four, calming bodily activity. And so if you find that there's tension somewhere, that you go to your hands and you find you're squeezing them and you didn't even know it. Like, oh, that's a bodily activity, I'm gripping. I'm Gonna try to relax that. My shoulders were up here and I didn't even know it. Now that I experienced the body in step three, I'm gonna relax the body in step four. If you try to just relax the body without experiencing it first, you end up forcing the body to be still, but it often doesn't feel that relaxed. It's actually more relaxing to experience your body and breathe with it before you begin inviting it to be more calm and more relaxed. Does that make sense? Yeah. So this is a very linear description of one, two, three, four. Really what happens is that you start moving between these. You're with your breath a little bit, open up, you're aware of your body, relax your body. Then you can feel your breath a little more because your overall body is relaxed. That allows you to know your breath more intimately. And then your body calms down, you didn't even ask it to, so you jump to step four again. And then because your body is relaxed, you can experience it. Now you're at step three. Because you experience it, you go back to breathing, you feel good. Oh, look, your body is calmer again. So actually what happens is you begin to move between these and that's true for all these 16 steps you're not supposed to be a good Buddhist and diligently do one step at a time it's an interesting training to do that to know them all 16 steps but what really happens is that you're you're doing these group of four and that's how we arrive in the body how we use the breath to deepen our experience of the body and it's the foundation if you don't have much of a relationship to your body it's actually hard to then do the next couple of steps, calming mental activity, dropping further into uh, samadhi. So opening the field of the body, to any degree that you've done that, you can then do, um, have a better basis for deepening your meditation practice. And that's what's described here in these 16 steps, at least the four, first four steps. Any question about these first four steps that would help you stay on board? And so it's a very common technique suggested to count breaths. And what counting breaths do is it ups your commitment to not drift or not be um, sort of tranquilized into a sleepy state. When you count the breaths, you're reminding yourself, this is what I'm doing, I'm training in this, count the breaths. And so counting the breaths would be skillful ways within doing steps one and two. That brings up a good point. Um, doing yoga or qigong actually is a really great way to do steps three and four. And so you can do it directly or you can see how other practices come in and support deepening this foundation. There's a whole practice in the yoga tradition called pranayama. and pranayama, you train in long breaths. You train in short breaths. And there's a whole clearing of underlying um, blocks in the body by doing a whole pranayama teaching. I don't think the Buddha was saying you should do breath training here, but you can see how breath training would help with these first two steps. And then the asana practice in yoga, or the the body movements in qigong, especially times with the breath, help ripen this first step. So when we do bring qigong or yoga or other movement practices onto the retreat, we're really uh, helping to develop and make this body foundation much more supportive for our practice. And so you can see a whole host of practices might come in here, and you might learn of the 10,000 ways you can train, these doesn't work for me. This is what I like doing, how I like experiencing the body, how I get to really be committed and intimate with the breath. How do you calm your body? Some people use the breath to calm their body. For other people, it's a more intuitive knowing and an intuitive letting go. <clears throat> You'll learn how to guide yourself through these first four steps. The next steps, these are, I'll, I'll do them. These next steps, experiencing pity and experiencing sukha. Sukha is easy because sukha is a state of contentment, happiness, and well-being. And so you're guided to actually experience that. Once you calm the body, you're guided to try to develop a sense of contentment and well-being. These are from the same people who brought you the first noble truth, that it's all dukkha. (laughs) But here it is. To actually have that insight, you need some underlying contentment and well-being, if it's all stressful, it's hard for that. You know it to be true, but it's hard to be liberated within that truth because you're so contracted. Yet if you actually begin to cultivate contentment and well-being, is step five. Then you begin to, to be more intimate with the flow of experience and you get to see its true nature. And so it's actually here. Number five, cultivate sukha. Sukha is the same Indo-European root as our word sugar. The SU is the same. And Sukha, sugar um, So you're supposed to actually experience it, cultivate it. I'm sorry, that's step six. Step five is piti. And piti has a lot of different translations. It often is translated as bliss or delight. But not all piti is actually pleasant. What piti yeah. is, is close to, in other traditions, what they would call chi or prana. Piti is an energetic quality in the body and an energetic quality in the mind. And it's usually um, a sense of vitality. So when you feel into your hands, there's pulsing, there's warmth, but you have that in other parts of your body. But what you really have in your hands that's kind of easier to access is a sense of aliveness in your hands. There's often a sense of aliveness in your face. It's tingling, it's pulsing, there's circulation. There's more sensation going on there. There's a more dynamic play of sensations. That's what... P-I-T-I is piti. And so I'm calling it here aliveness, but you'll, there are no other English translations that call it aliveness. They call it bliss. They call it delight. Um, if it's piti is in a really, if it's showing up in a kind of a beautiful way, it can be very blissful, where you feel the body tingling. Um, but you can also have a sense of um, circulation in the body that makes you a little bit nauseous. And that's also piti. So... Um, What you're supposed to do once you calm the body in step four is then begin looking through your calm body. And if you've actually felt it and calmed it, then you can begin to feel the body relax and open. As it relaxes and opens, there's much better circulation. And in that circulation, you'll feel pulsing, tingling, flow, warmth. That's when you begin feeling pity. And it actually wakes you up a little bit. It's like, oh, I actually am supposed to look for this. Starting in your hands, your face. Other parts where you feel any tingling, any aliveness. In that field of tingling and aliveness, you can also relax back and find the sukkha. And the sukkha is that contentment. If you develop and really cultivate piti and sukkha, then being in the present is actually really rewarding. If the piti and sukkha are not predominating your experience, the present moment, it's work to be there. It's boring to be there. its You'd rather be elsewhere but if you begin to, f- to track the piti and the sukha, they begin to make being present actually feel better than all the places your mind would wander to. And your mind is less likely to wander elsewhere for its happiness and contentment because actually feeling it in the present moment, it's very skillful to do that. <coughs> so not many of you, I would bet, have spent a lot of time really cultivating an awareness of these delightful sensations in the body, or an overall sense of happiness and well-being. Pity and sukha can be felt in the body. They can also be experienced in the heart and the mind. If pity and sukha, at least pity piti arises when you drink caffeine. That's how you know pity in the body. That's how you know pity <laughs> in the mind. The mind becomes agile, becomes alive. That's pity in the mind. That awakening, if you've got kind of a headache, and you drink some coffee or tea, and you feel the headache opening up, and you... And your neck opens up, and you actually feel that kind of energetic quality in your body. That's piti in the body, and that's piti in the mind. Caffeine releases chi, it releases prana, it releases piti. So in our tradition, that's P-I-T-I. And why drinking some green tea might help you with step five, <laughs> drinking coffee might uh, overdo step five and make it hard for you actually to feel this relaxing contentment of step six. Step seven and eight, experiencing your mental activity, once you have a sense of contentment, then you begin to see, okay, what's left over in my mind? Well, it's really stuck on this argument I had last night. It keeps going back to that. Plenty of happiness contentment here, but I'm still working out my lecture I want to give so-and-so because they pissed me off last night. So, okay, I've still got some mental activity. you got to breathe with it and see it. And don't just go... Away with you, away with you. Stop being so mentally active. Breathe with your mental activity and then invite it to be more calm. Invite yourself to let go of the the, the kernel of what your mental activity is obsessed about. You're obsessed about getting something. You're obsessed <coughs> about something in the past, something in the future. You'll do a deeper letting go if you first breathe with it. If it's unpleasant, you don't want to breathe with it. But you'll do a better job of letting go of it if you actually breathe with your mental activity before then inviting that mental activity to be more quiet, to be more tranquil, to let go. You <clears throat> noting mental activity is a good way to do number seven, if you've trained in that. Number seven is experiencing mental activity. If I'm angry, I don't want to just say the mental note, anger, 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 and have the predominance of my experience be the note. The note is to stabilize the intimacy with the mental activity. So when you do noting practice, you're not trying to drown out the experience you're having, The noting is supposed to be like 5% of your experience to support you actually taking interest in whatever the predominant 95% is. So if you're angry, you might say anger, anger, anger. Not to be beating the anger with a baseball bat trying to get it back into its cage. But like, oh, mm, obsession, oh, fear. You're saying that to steady your mindfulness, so you can stay in it with perspective as opposed to being swept up by the mental activity. If you can name your mental activity, you're less likely to be swept up by it. If you're swept up by it, you're probably not naming it. But you don't want to shout the name of what's happening trying to beat it back. You're trying to breathe with it and then invite it to relax. Like, I'm really angry with what somebody said yesterday. Okay, I breathe with the anger, breathe with the anger let's take a break. Let's take a break from the anger. If I breathe with my anger, it's more likely to take a break. If I say, shut up, anger, it usually comes back, and I have this uh, wrestling match with my anger. Breathe with it first, and then ask it to take a break, and you'll find that you're more li- you drop into a much deeper <coughs> break from whatever the mental activity is if you breathe with it first. the sense of aliveness and also contentment that that state feels like what i get to when i do a lot of heart practices mm-hmm. with compassion and gratitude and a lot right of kindness right and i'm just wondering how those things go together so she was saying that um she gets into the steps five and six when she does a lot of the heart practices like the brahmavihara practices. The loving kindness practices, the compassion practices, those four Brahmavihara practices. And so then what you're recognizing is that's how you can really develop steps five and six, that just breathing might not get a lot of contentment going. It's just the breath after all. For some people they're like, oh no. I just give me the breath and I get really content. For other people are like, Yeah, it's the breath. But if I actually bring in some warmth, And I've reflected all about the people I care about and care about myself. It's like, oh, it's so precious. I get this tingling just because that's a really easy access for me to feel just so delighted and alive, so glad I'm alive. And I can settle back in and just feel that really beautiful, steady flow. And so then you've learned how you can begin to cultivate this. Start with breathing and then see if augmenting practices really open up the sense of aliveness, the positive side of aliveness, and the beautiful side of contentment. And then see if you can then guide that back into the felt sense of being in your body while you breathe and feeling alive and content. If you have underlying pain, mental pain or physical pain, that can be a challenge to really establish steps five and six. But you can still do it. It just it takes more dedication not to be defined by physical pain or the mental pain yes i'm angry yes i'm sad but i practice long enough not to be completely consumed by it and i have some perspective on it and yes i'm basically okay even though i have this pain in my body yes i'm basically okay even though i have a problem at home or at work and then it's harder to access but you if you can still access five and six you stand a better chance, actually, than calming your mental activity because you're not just being defined by the pain in your body, uh, pain in your heart and your mind. And 5 and 6 get more challenging if you have a chronic illness. I've had a chronic illness for a long time, but it's taken me a long time to actually recover 5 and 6, even though I'm working with a long-term chronic illness. (coughs) Then we get into samadhi. And there are a few Pali words that are really worth getting to know because their English just doesn't live up to it. As I described earlier, earlier, if you look at, let's go back a little bit, if you look at here, you have this aliveness, this cooled-off contentment. Mental activity has been quieted. That's, there's a It's a very beautiful state. And that's actually the taste of samadhi. The taste of samadhi is this sort of, underlying stability of well-being that allows you to point all of your attention in one direction. Yet we call it concentration. So, uh, just so you know, when you read texts it's often talked about concentrating the mind, it really doesn't do justice to what samadhi is. Step nine is experiencing the mind itself. So, these next steps you have to practice a little bit to know the difference between the mind and mental activity. The Pali for mental activity is Chitta Sankaras. Sankaras is the, the driven activity, Chitta is the mind. So the atmosphere of this room is like Chitta, yet the activity is what we're all doing. If I turned up the heat in this room, the feeling of the room would get hotter and hotter, but the activity would be people fanning themselves. So this is a difference. You can have angry activity, you can calm that down, but still have an angry heart and mind. There are not no stories being driven, but the taste of the heart and the mind is that it's still hot and still irritated, but there's no longer activity you could point towards. It's just the climate inside is angry. So once you calm down mental activity, you can then begin to really feel what's going on in my heart and my mind. And it's really... Uh, an environmental question, an atmospheric question. What's the atmosphere of my heart and my mind? Is my heart and my mind hot with anger? Is the heart, my heart and my mind um, shut down with depression? Is my heart and my mind lifted and buoyed by love? That type of heart and mind will probably produce mental activity that are, that's like it. So a loving heart and mind will produce loving um, mental activity. You calm down the mental activity, you can then see what the underlying condition of the heart and the mind is. Calm down the, mental, the heart and the mind, you don't have to work so hard then calming down the mental activity, because as the mind becomes calmer, so does the mental activity. This is You go back and forth between these, but in a sort of linear progression, calming mental activity, you get to experience your heart and mind. What's going on in your heart and your mind? Probably the mental activity you just quieted down is a good indicator of what's going on in your heart and your mind. So how many of you right now are boiling over in murderous rage? Okay. What's it like not to be boiling over with murderous rage? What are some of the qualities in your heart and your mind because they're not flooded with murderous rage? Calm. Calm. What's that? The latter. Compassion. Compassion. Mm -hmm. Ease. Ease. And so you don't necessarily ask, what's my mental activity? You go to that more felt sense. Oh, there's ease. Yeah. So that's experiencing the mind. Sometimes the mind, the qualities are so subtle, you actually have to ask, compared to a time when I was swept up in something while I'm meditating, These are the qualities that are here, presence, calm. You experience the mind. And now in this one, you don't calm it. The next one is not about calming it. It's about lifting it, gladdening the mind. Again, these are from the same people who brought you the first noble truth. Step 10, gladden the mind. You might need a certain reflection, but you sit there and your mind is calm but then you just let it become warm. Like you're watching a sunrise, or you've just built a fire, and you put your hands up to it. Like, oh my God, the flow of present time experiences. I'm alive, I'm content. But I'm also gonna lift myself and sort of expand from within into this steady gladness. The Pali word is Pomoja. And the, the aliveness of piti is stirring. The settling of sukha is calming. And pamoja is sort of between the two. Pamoja is this, um, you allow yourself to experience your mind and then head it in a glad direction. I'm angry. Okay, angry mind, let's head in a glad direction. Let's do some appreciations. I'm glad that I'm here. I'm in a loving state, beautiful. Keep the gladness of that. So it's lifting and warming yourself, warming the state of the heart and the mind. Because then we get into state um, step 11, which is concentrating the mind, and that's really stabilizing it. If you experience the mind, try to stabilize it. A lot of people then go into a sleepy state. So you experience the mind, gladden it, and then invite it to be very stable and loyal with the breath. Or if you've been using some other meditation object, you can do that. Experiencing the mind, gladdening the mind, stabilizing the focus of your attention. Then, step 12, while you've, once you've stabilized your attention, then you begin to ask the question from within the flow of your experience My mind is released from its afflictions. This is the taste of a liberated mind. Temporarily, your mind has no afflictions. It's glad, it's stable. You've calmed down all the driving mental activity. And you begin to notice My mind is released. It's released temporarily from fear, from doubt, from resentment, from worry, from anger, from sadness. All my mental afflictions have gone into quietude, and that's really what samadhi does. and What these first 12 steps are is they stop negative activity from steaming along, and you bring it into quiet. To truly liberate, there's more work to be done, but while you're in a state of well-being, rather than just experiencing it, Take notice of it, appreciate it, and recognize my own mindstream right now is not afflicted. And that's what step 12 is here. Yeah? Um, most of these other previous ones where there's an intentionality, this one seems like a product of the first 11 steps. Am I understanding that correctly? So step 12 is a product of the other ones, um, but you actually want to be active. So if your samadhi is the outcome. Your body is, is relaxed. Your breath is happening within your body. You've calmed down your mental activity. You've learned to stabilize your attention, no longer any distraction, no wishing you were elsewhere. And then you begin to investigate the fact that your mind is free. And so you want to begin appreciating and investigating and exploring and getting oriented to your own stream of consciousness that's not afflicted. So you're exploring the outcome of samadhi, which is step 11, and you're taking note of it. If you had a compass that didn't point north and just kept wandering, it would be useless in fog, right? So I have a compass, but it's useless because the needle just wanders. That's like, oh, should I do this? Should I go to grad school and not go to grad school? Should I get married? Should I have kids? I don't know. Where's the happiness in any of that? It's this way, it's that way. It's like... I think i made a mistake when i was in college i should have studied this and like the needle is just going all over the place and that's our temper, that's our usual confusion But if you get to know samadhi it shows you that the most profound happiness doesn't come from outside you settle your relationship to the outside but then you start getting this wellness from within and not many of us are oriented to that so when you actually establish some samadhi, you got to start magnetizing your needle to that experience so that when you get confused, you pull out your intuitive compass and say, my happiness won't come from winning this argument. My happiness won't come from getting this obsession. My greatest happiness will come when I find a peaceful relationship to being on the planet. And then I know that's actually the samadhi has shown me a pure stream of consciousness, and that pure stream of consciousness is reliable. That pure stream of consciousness is a taste of the third noble truth, at least temporarily, that your afflictions and your dramas have been subdued in a really healthy way, not just through suppression, but actually letting go of them and then tasting. And we need more orientation towards that so we're not seduced into old patterns of thinking that I'll be happy if I, you and I are fighting, I'll be happy if I win, or I'll be happy if I run out the door. It's like, okay, those are short-term strategies, but you lost track of your well-being. That's why you got wrapped up in the in the argument, and that's why everything's gotten so complicated, and why none of your solutions actually lead to happiness, because you've forgotten your your well-being actually arises from within, your deepest well-being which is why you really want to do step 12. You want to really explore the unafflicted mind, not just kick back, drink a lemonade, and experience the unafflicted mind like, oh, this is great. No, start to actually like, what is the non-afflicted heart and mind like? What's the mind like when it's not being beaten up by anger or doubt or resentment or impatience? Most of us kick back and those like, oh, thank God. Like, great, I'm glad you've arrived there, but get to know it, get familiar with it because that's actually where we're headed. That's the third noble truth, the unafflicted heart and mind. But we've only gotten there through samadhi, which means that all those things have just gone dormant. And you actually cannot just through samadhi, from our understanding of this tradition, you cannot get to full awakening until you do another layer of work, which is the vipassana. But through concentration, through samadhi, you can begin to see, I had this incredible sense of well-being and it wasn't drawn because I had sugar on my tongue, or my favorite color in my eye, or my favorite song in my ear, it wasn't based on experiences. I actually had stability of well-being, and then found that as I got more stable, I could go through all these different experiences and still have well-being, because it was born from within, not dependent upon circumstances. Except it is still dependent upon samadhi, but it's really heading us in the right direction. So that's why step 12 is there, to begin familiarizing ourselves with well-being born from within, born from clean consciousness. But we've only cleaned it because we've we've skillfully put things into dormancy. We have to then use Vipassana to flush them out, which is what the next four steps are. What I'd like to do is actually put us into practice and then come back for questions about this so that we're actually coming more from experience. And I know you are all coming from experience, um, I've loved the questions so far, but let's actually do a practice period together, explore some of this, and then come back and we'll have time for um, more questions and responses. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.